HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. This is Mike Edison, host of Art Senses and Seizures. You're listening to the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, please visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. We talk about food. About music with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes.
Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Stephen Clavier uh, with Follow, who will be performing, performing live later on in the studio. Um, but up first, we have John Gray of Ghetto Gastro. What up, what up, what up? Welcome to the show. Um, for those of the people who don't know, what is, the, what is the goal and the mission of Ghetto Gastro? Well, Ghetto Gastro, we're a culinary collective, born and bred in the Bronx. And our mission is bringing the Bronx to the world and then bringing the world back to the Bronx through food and ex- through food experiences. I mean, some have described Bronx, the Bronx as a food oasis. Uh, how would you respond to that? Well, first and foremost, the Bronx is the largest food distribution um, center in the world with the Fulton Fish Market moving to Hunts Point and also the Bronx Terminal Market for produce. But I, I look at it as something like a food desert, almost comparing it to if you couldn't get good Coke or good coffee in Colombia, because all of the food is going downtown and elsewhere on the eastern seaboard. So a lot of the food is distributed there, but doesn't stay in the in the area. Exactly, it's hard to get like fresh fruit in the bodega, you know. Well, I mean, most bo- most bodegas. Um, have you seen any, or what changes have you seen recently that have kind of pointed toward towards a more promising time? Well, there's been a lot of development happening in the Mott Haven and Port Morris section of the Bronx. It was just a big land grab, like an $80 million land grab, 
on the Harlem River waterfront. So I think and they rezoned it, so there's going to be a lot of different development going on out there, like residential, mixed-use, commercial, and whatnot. Right, that's great. Um, tell me about your two partners. All right, so one of my partners, Lester Walker, um, me and him grew up together. My grandmother actually taught his brother in fourth grade, so mm-hmm. we, we go way back, like Cadillac seats. And then Malcolm, he's an ill pastry chef, currently the pastry chef at Noma, um, just went out there like last year, and he's killing it. And how, did, and how did you guys come up with the idea? Like, how did it begin to evolve? Well, it started out, um, I was working in fashion, and I, I just started realizing I didn't like the business of fashion. So I really reverse engineered the concept from my passion, which is food and travel. And I woke up from a nap with the name Ghetto Gastro. And I didn't know what it was going to be. Awesome. But, <laughs> but but we just decided, first we thought, like, oh, we're going to do, like, a web series and whatever, whatever. So... Then we started doing like different events for corporate clients to fund that, and then that became a whole nother lane of in a realm of creative expression. I was like, let's keep doing this and see how far we can expand this. And now we're starting to circle back to creating content. What was the first event that you did where you felt like, okay, this is going to stick and this will be something? Well, I think from the first ever dinner we did, that's when I was like, oh yeah, we got some shit here. What we, was what was the dinner? It was just really a dinner that we did at a friend's house on the Upper East Side. A bunch of a bunch of um, money folks, but it was it was it was really at the point where we got all of these people together, and it was our first time working together as a unit. And I was like, oh, it crystallized into something like, oh, the people are receptive to it. I think we could scale this, and that we'll be able to really do something substantial with it. And how do the the three of you work? Like, what roles do you play in a in like the proposing of an event and then the execution? It really, it really depends. It's, a, it's like a by-case basis. Usually I'm the one organizing it from, like, the logistical side, and then we'll all collaborate creatively on creating menus and what the look and feel of the space should be. So it's, re- it's really a collaboration. But besides the three founders, we also have an extensive team. We have um, the homie Chef Pierre who gets down. He's, like, the capo status. So after the founders, he's, like, next in line. <laughs> And then we just we have a have a huge team. We have Maria Jose Hordan who's holding it down in Lima, Peru. She was just up for best young chefs in the world. She got second place. Mm. She's only female and only pastry chef. Amazing. So um, she did that in Milan back in June. So we have an extensive team. And how have you built the team? Over, I mean, when did this, to give people um, reference? When did this start? We started August of 2012. So we just like passed our three years. Um, so, like, how have you met these people and how have you incorporated them, especially with Bronx being the, the central focus of your mission? It's been really organic. So, like, some of, some of the people on the squad trained with Malcolm or Lester at their restaurants and just saw what we were doing and the energy we were bringing to the space and just really wanted to get down with the movement. Like, how can I be a part of it? And then we, we test their will and put them, through the, put them through the gauntlet, you know, an extensive initiation process. So a lot, a lot of the members got down like that. And then others are like cats like Massimo Batura, who's a GG ambassador in Italy. And we met him. We were in Copenhagen. He's like, yo, what, what, what y'all doing, man? I got to get down. Like, I like the energy. Because when you see us in a, in a room full of culinary cats, we just bring a different energy and it's a different vibe. Well, I mean, what, what do you feel sets, sets you apart? Well, besides just being three black males. <laughs> <laughs> besides that. Um, I think I think really bridging the gaps between downtown culture, the arts, music, and really incorporating that in a natural way into the experience where it doesn't seem 
force. It's like, no, we're just bringing our friends together, and our friends happen to live and be experts in these different worlds. So we just we all get, to, get together and jam out. Do you feel that you had to learn a different language to, in the beginning to kind of explain what you were doing and then were able to bring it back to your own terms? What do you mean exactly? Uh, I mean, like, I mean, coming from the Bronx, like, from the way in which you talk to each other and then entering into what you have just kind of alluded to as, like, a, a mostly white, you know, money type of environment. Have you felt that you've had to, like, adopt different conversations in the beginning to explain what you are or have you just been able to stay true to yourself and, and do it your own way? I still find it challenging to, ex- challenging to explain exactly what we are because I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. But as far as, like, being in the industry, I think us maintaining our voice is what made us unique and what, what had people gravitate to us. And, like, oh, what, what are these dudes doing? What are they up to? But cats like Malcolm, he's trained. Malcolm and Lester, they've trained at the best restaurants in the world. So they've always had, like, that side of the culinary chops down. Mm-hmm. It was just bringing the other energy to that and creating something new. Can you define the ghetto and ghetto gastro? Because you have a good explanation for it. Well, the ghetto's where we're from. And then it's like also just um, bringing, bringing a different thought process about what ghetto means and taking it from a negative and bringing it into a positive because it's like connecting the lowbrow and the highbrow, even though I hate that term because I don't feel like it's a such thing as high or low culture. It's just different. Yeah. But, but br- bridging those gaps and, and seeing the beauty in all of it and how they connect, I think is, it creates an interesting conversation. Yeah, ag- I would agree with you. I mean, it's, it's easy in like a media term. I mean, a lot of the articles are like the high brown, low rub, but I just think it's like one thing and then something else that are not normally paired together. Exactly. It's like uh, like your party that you did at Le Baron with like the, the stripper and the waffles. It's like I you would not say that the stripper is lowbrow you just say it's like putting it together yeah so i say like uptown culture it's like some of the things it's just bringing the things we love in, in one room you know i was going to strip clubs before i was going to regular clubs because i had to connect with the bouncer and i made a fake <laughs> fake id he was my neighbor so i was doing a strip club thing for a while and it's just bringing that together in the fashion atmosphere you know waffles and models but having the models be exotic dancers it just uh, created a nice little disruption in the space. Yeah. Um, well, I want to I want to get to a song because music is a big part of what you guys do. So uh, you picked the music today. So tell me about the DJ Esco track that you picked. Well, it's Future. Um, it's a Future mixtape hosted by DJ Esco, and I feel like Future he just has the streets right now. You know, like him and Drake definitely like uh, have have the game on lock. And it's just a song that it was like the this song "Never Gonna Lose" was our theme song. We were in Europe this this summer because we just felt like we can't take a loss. Like we just have great momentum. We out here jumping off of boats, doing backflips <laughs> from the Bronx to the to Sardinian seas. It's like we're not going to lose. We're going to just keep taking it to the top. All right, perfect. So um, we'll be back after the song and talk about some of the events, uh, plating, and your unique presentation. Um, but first.
Summer anthems. <laughs> Have you retired it yet? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I moved, I'm, on, I'm on to Travis Scott right now. Oh, okay. I mean, it's amazing. There's there's a couple records I listen to all summer, and now I like I like I can't reach for it. You just it's, it's, you burn out. I listen to it in the gym a little bit if I need to get that extra pump. <laughs> just on, on repeat. <laughs> yeah. um, so I want to talk about some of the events you've done because it shows such a wide wide range. I think it kind of lets people understand a little bit more what you're all about besides just, you know, waffles and, and strippers. But l- <laughs> let's talk about um, what you did in the south of France. Oh, so um, we did a project with Microsoft where we brought the South Bronx to the south of France. And this was an exercise in us really touching down in the, in the province two weeks ahead. We didn't really know anybody that spoke French. We didn't speak French. We didn't know where to go for supplies. And we just touched down and had to pull this event together in like six days. Whoa. Uh, so what, and what did what did the uh, event entail? Um, pretty much, it was it was a celebration for Microsoft. They they had a campaign that they did called Million Square Feet, where they sponsored different creatives, and the, and the goal was to create a million square feet of culture. So they did some work with Solange, um, some some Vogue and bounce dances out of New Orleans. They did like a Vogue bounce. What do you call it? Like a it was a, a dance off. They brought New York uh, Vogers down to, yeah, with Rusty Laser. Yeah, it was yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The so, vid- if you if you have a chance to look at the videos, it's it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So I remember yeah. I, I was in the edit suite when they were making that video. So 
So this was, they, they were up for some Cannes Lions Awards, which is like a advertising festival in the south of France. And they were up for some awards, so they brought us to kind of celebrate them being up for awards. So that, that was that. And then we just did our thing. What was the food? So the food was inspired by, we did, and we did more than just the food. We, we had to secure a DJ. We had to staff it. We did design the house and everything. So the food, what did we do? It was, the food was us really taking items that we grew up with and interpreting them with the ingredients that, were, that we had in the, in the south of France. So we did like a cornbread, caviar, and crab dish. Mm. So we had it served out of the caviar tin. We did some pizzas, pizzas with Iberico ham, peaches, and like hazelnuts and whatnot. What else did we do? We did a rare fried chicken. So a rare is like a crushed Japanese rice cracker. Mm. And instead of doing a typical bread and f- like flour for the chicken, we, we dredged it in a rare. So it had like a rice crispy crunch. And then we did like a far gras butter and a um, Dijon mustard sauce for the, for the chicken. What else did we do? We did a cantaloupe and melon gazpacho, like mm. kind of like a pre, like uh, a mousse bouche to start the meal. For the chefs, was it, how long did it take them to um, kind of like reappropriate the local ingredients into the, the dishes from the Bronx? Man, it was like two days. Everything, they did everything in two, two to three days, like no sleep. Because it was just less than Malcolm. Just, just, and working out of a European kitchen, like, we didn't have any industrial kitchen. We were, like, we had three Airbnbs apartments spread out in Nice. And you can imagine, like, a European fridge looks like a college dorm fridge. Yeah. And the stove is, like, has, like, one and a half burners. So them, <laughs> them, them having to work in that type of environment to feed this, this many people was crazy. How big was the dinner? The dinner was like 50 people, oh, 50 yeah, people, well, but a lot of courses. Yeah, that's okay. You know. Um, let's talk about what you did down in Miami for Op Basel. Okay, okay. Um, three-day party, uh, FKA Twigs, uh, Drake, and uh, what was the food that you served, and what was the concept <laughs> for the event? I, I think the most memorable food item we had for this event was a dish that we called the Whiteout. <laughs> and, and the inspiration for the Pagal Music Mansion that we did when I went into it, I was like, all right, boom. Our inspiration is Griselda Blanco meets Miami Vice. So basically cocaine cowboys. <laughs> so Malcolm created a dessert called the White Out. It was a coconut sphere. It's like a disc. It almost looked like a hockey puck. Coconut sorbet. Then we got coca leaf imported from Bolivia on a low. <laughs> I got a plug for that. And he made a jelly out of the cocoa, out of the coca leaf. And then we did a dehydrated coconut powder. So it basically looked like three ounces of coke on the plate (laughs) and the plates that we had made were basically like acrylic mirrored glass acrylic Mm -hmm. so it looked like a bunch of coke on a mirror glass so so when we we were plating it up and and we had his wife plating it with gloves on it looked like a a dope factory you know (laughs) (laughs) so people at the party were like oh what's going on over here i want to i want to be over there like yeah i want to get on that party so (laughs) so so that and that was for the fk twigs dinner and then the next day, we did a barbecue with um, Virgil Blow, Theophilus London, some of the homies from ASAP. You know, shout out to ASAP. And then the next day, it was a shit show. We did a party with Drake. So so Drake came and DJed. It was supposed to be 150 people. Ended up being 600. <laughs> so you can only imagine how that went down. But yeah. it turned out, it was all successful. It turned out, well, everybody was happy. And the plating that you guys have is super inventive as well and, like, really playful. How does that factor into the discussion and concepting with the events? Well, a lot, a lot of the with plating, sometimes it's, for, it's four-man function. So 
we go into it like how are we going to add that ghetto gastro twist so a staple a staple piece of plate where we use is a fried chicken box with a gg stamp on it Mm -hmm. and that's just paying homage to the hood kennedy fried chicken mama's fried chicken crown fried chicken that's like something that you'll find in every neighborhood uptown and then when it gets to like crazy plating you got cats like malcolm and less that just know how to get crazy with things like the cocaine and then reappropriating caviar tendons, figuring out a way to be creative with it. So we just like to be playful and whimsical. Uh, is there any like thing that you tried, you guys had to execute that just like totally didn't work? That was too fantasy and couldn't be turned to reality? Uh, not that I could think of, not off top. I'm sure that'll happen soon. <laughs> uh, do you have like a fantasy event that you want to just like put out there and someone can hire you for well i don't even want to get like nowadays we we don't even want to get hired we just want to people to jump on our on our concepts like we want to be a part of that so that's what's been a lot of that has been happening lately and we have this concept called freedom land which is basically a culinary carnival where we want to collaborate and um pair contemporary chefs so like some of the top cats in the world when you think of renee rezepi alex itala massimo and linking up with like sick contemporary artists in different mediums and figuring out a playful boardwalk experience. Mm. Do you have a, would this be in the Bronx or? Of course. Yeah. Most of the big events, everything that we're thinking about is in the Bronx. So It's been interesting that you've gone out into the world and done these things and now slowly anchoring it all back, you know, go out to meet the people and then bring them all back there. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people have a misconception about the Bronx. People are still afraid from what they heard about in the 70s. And then it's also going to be a little bit far when you have a lot of cats in the space living in Brooklyn or living downtown. So just really giving them something that's worth the, worth the commute. If there was one misconception you could correct about the Bronx, what would you tell people? <sighs> that it's safe, you know? I feel like when you're in the hood, when you're scared, that's when you attract the drama. Right. You just have to, like, mind your business and keep it moving, and everything is good. Uh, would you guys ever consider a brick and mortar? or? D- well, we're looking into that, um, hopefully in the next two years. You know, hopefully when Malcolm finishes doing his thing at Noma, we get... Well, we, that's done in two years anyway, so... Well, but, but, they're, but, they're, but they're doing it a little I different, know, I so, know. <laughs> so I know, I'm sure he's going to want to be a part of that. And yeah. Shout out to Renee with making that move. Dude, best move. Like, way to, like, change things when you're on top. For anybody who doesn't know, he's shutting Noma down in a couple of years and open, reopening as a farm, which is insane because he could be busy for the next decade, yeah, hundred years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that, and going into that, I know that you know when we when we spoke offline that I talked about doing that same thing yeah. in the Bronx. So, yeah. So when we go into brick and mortar, hopefully it's through this idea called the Space Farm where we're doing aquaponics, hydroponics, work engaging the youth in the community and training them how to work with food from the we call it from the soil to the oil so so from the and even if it's aquaponics we still call it soil, <laughs> you know <laughs> um so i want to make sure that we get to this next song but um where can people find you where can they get updates where can they hear about the next dinners um right now we're still operating in a, in a clandestine form but you could definitely follow us on all of the social media networks at ghetto gastro instagram snapchat twitter I haven't updated our Facebook profile in probably about two years, but we're That's there. <laughs> so, yeah, all of the social media would be at Ghetto Gastro. And then uh, last question, uh, where is the like spot that you want would send people to in the Bronx to go eat that would be most representative of the Bronx? Well, it's so many different flavors and cultures, so I would definitely have them go to City Island if it's warm out. 
just to kind of get a feel and see like the boats and the water waterways out there. So Johnny's Reef on City Island. I'll send him to the Rastafarian juice bar to get a green juice. You know, after you're drinking all of those Hennessy coladas, you definitely need a detox. <laughs> so I'll send him to the Green Gardens on White Plains Road. Also send him to the Beef Patty Shop, Tropical Kingston Bakery on White Plains. We just did a piece with Travel and Leisure mm. where we kind of showed him a map of so all of our So it's like spots. just all off the top of your head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all right there. And then it's like good roti. I've been really into having a $10 plate that I could share with somebody mm. rather than like spending $180 at a restaurant. I like, let me spend 10 to 15 and share it with three people. That's like my new fascination since I've moved back to the Bronx. I like it. Also, let's just shout him out to Brooks and Superiority oh. Burger. Oh yeah, Superiority Burger. Congratulations. I was there yesterday. Shout out to Brooks. Two stars. He hit me with the kelp and the, and the, and the, um, the, the Dijon mustard potatoes, and I always get the Philly cheese, Philly Yuba cheesesteak. It's ins- amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's like vegetarian food, but you don't even think twice about it being vegetarian. No. Um, so uh, you got Big Pun queued up next. So, you know, being from the Bronx, you got to rep Big Pun. He definitely put, put us back on the map. Even though we started this whole hip-hop thing, he kind of put another energy in it, especially for the Latin, my Latin brothers and sisters. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
So good. Great. So smooth. Uh, Steven, yes. welcome to Snacky Tunes. It's nice Thank to you. see you in the daylight. Absolutely. Um, we're both Philly kids. We are. Uh, so tell me what your version of growing up in Philly was like. Uh, I mean, I grew up like uh, about a, like half hour in the suburbs, like outside of the I city. I mean, same, but you know, yeah. approximately. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um I mean, I definitely, it it was very, like, suburban for sure, and I remember, like, being in high school and kind of, like, finally able to, like, get away and, like, sneak into the city and, like, go to clubs and all that kind of stuff, and I grew up in a very, like, white suburban, like, you know, very traditional family, so I definitely, as I, you know, got a little bit older, always kind of, like, escaped into the city to kind of uh, really get away from that or, or run from that in a way, you know, so I definitely um, went downtown a lot, I went to a lot of gay clubs in Philly, and then I kind of, like, became a club promoter when I was, like, 17 or 18 years old, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, but um, they just asked me to, and I basically was like, oh, so I can come for free, and I can bring my friends, and they said yes, and that's how that all started. <laughs> well, what was your, like, uh, best tactic for getting people to come as a young promoter? You know, when I was a young promoter, I, I didn't really care. Like, it really, like, I just wanted to get into the club, and I just wanted to be able to bring my friends, so I definitely, like, they would kind of send us out with flyers and stuff, and I would just kind of, like half-ass it and, like, give out some flyers. But really, just for me, when I was 17, like, I didn't really care about, like, even making money. I was just like, I just want to go to this club and be a promoter, and it was the coolest thing in the world to me at the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. um, Where were the places that you would go? Uh, I used to be a promoter at Chrome, uh, which was, like, on Delaware Avenue. Uh, I used to go to Woody's and Bump and Shampoo, uh, Egypt, like oh, all of these places. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's super... like my childhood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just had like a terrible flashback to like uh, going to Egypt like the Dude, Wednesday before Egypt, Thanksgiving. Yeah, I think <laughs> Egypt was probably the first nightclub I ever went to. And I definitely went on like a underage night. And I might have been like 16 or 15 and I remember um, I went with a bunch of my friends and I was like so stoked about it and looking back on it now I mean it's it was a really crazy place yeah. really interesting but uh, I remember just being really 
really drunk when I was there, and like I think it was underage night too, and just like lo- immediately losing everybody, yeah. like immediately losing everybody, <laughs> and just like wandering around and being like, okay, this is a club, yeah, okay, this is a club, <laughs> this is, this is, a club. is amazing, yeah, everyone looks like they're having the best time ever, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the and who were the DJs that you saw? Who were like some of the acts that were inspired? Um, I mean, I just remember like definitely one of the people that brought me into to dance music at the time. Robbie Tronco was a really big DJ in Philly background at, at that time, and I was really into Robbie Tronco, and he was spinning a lot at some of the parties that I was doing. Um, I just remember him specifically, really kind of. Uh, um, you know, I had a really kind of like sheltered childhood, so it really wasn't until I got out into clubs and I got a little bit older that I really got to hear music outside of like whatever was on the radio or whatever my parents were, you know what I mean? Like it was just like mainstream music was really all that I had access to in a way at that time because this was really like kind of pre-internet, mm-hmm. uh, right around the brink of, yeah. you know. And how, how did you discover it? Like, how, like what was your, your entry point? I mean, really just the clubs, really, and, and the DJs. And then um, after that, you know, the internet and um, kind of became a, a channel for music and Napster and all that stuff came in. So as a teenager, it was it was amazing. You could just go on and, and find anything that you wanted and, and download it and explore it and find it, you know? We might be like the last generation to know the before and the after yeah. that. Yeah, it's interesting because now there's just such a, a plethora. I mean, it's it's almost like everything rains at you from every direction now musically. But back then, you know, especially if you were in the suburbs and like there wasn't any parties to go to, you had the radio and that was it, you know, unless you had somebody that was like really cool that was like on the brink of something else or in some other scene. But, you know, if you're just like a normal kid, you're listening to the radio and you're watching TV and that's your only real like access at that time, you know, like pre the Internet being what it is today. Do you remember like the first dance song or club song you fell in love with? Uh, I think that's hard to say. I really loved um, I remember being in middle school and really loving like. Robert Miles' Children, like, that song was amazing. Um, Robin S. Show Me Love, obviously, club classic, yeah. banger, definitely one of my favorite songs. I think I still hear it now, and even though I've heard it so many times and played it so many times when I DJ'd it, I still hear it now, and I still get excited. It, Yeah, it's one of those songs that you can play it at any party, and everyone will stop what they're doing and just, like, have a great time. Um, there was maybe, like, a six-month period where, like, it was played out, but now it's just back to, like... I love hearing this song. Dude, it's so great. I saw her perform it at, um, there was a Red Bull Sound Clash, like, maybe two years ago, Mm -hmm. and Trouble and Bass had her as a special guest perform it live, and, I mean, it was like, not a day had passed since she released the record. She was amazing. It was, it was such a good performance, and... Uh, you were also in a church choir, right? When you were younger. Yeah, man. I, I like. I feel like I grew up in a church. Like my my mom worked in a church. I just spent a lot of time there. Like, it, and I definitely got like that's kind of how I got into music, really, just because my mom was like a church choir director. So I like really just was there all the time, and I was just around music all the time, and then. Um, I started taking piano lessons, and then eventually, like, I used to, like, play piano for them and and do stuff like that. Um, I've since, like, moved on from that part of my life, for sure. But, uh, you know, definitely, like, that's a huge part of, like, what brought me into music. Um, Well, why don't we hear a song? Okay. What are you going to play first? Uh, We're going to do Over first. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Live on Snacky Tunes.
follow, 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 follow me. Nighttime in here. Yeah, it's a little weird to like sing that song in the. Well, let's switch mics here. It's a little weird to sing that song in a radio show. I'm usually singing it in a club. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could. I guess we could have had you on in like December and yeah. it been dark out. <laughs> um, so you work with some of the past guests that we've had on this radio show, notably Luca, okay. who was the first guest on Snacky Tunes oh, six years ago. Um, how who else do you work with and like who like what projects have you uh, done with people? Um, so I, a lot um, the two records uh, the two EPs that I have out now um, follow and over are with Walker and Royce. Uh, obviously, uh, I have some stuff that I'm working on with Luca, uh, working now with uh, Ellie Escobar as well. Um, I do some performance stuff with MNDR as well, and there's some other DJs and stuff that I have some records that I'm working on and hopefully will come out later down the line, you know? <laughs> um, and what is your collaboration process like? And does it differ for everyone you work with? Uh, it really differs because some, some producers prefer to have a vocal to build a track around. Mm. Um, personally, I like to, to write over an already completed track, or at least something started, like a, mm-hmm. a bare-bones track, and then uh, I'll write the top line over top, even if it's just like a vibe or an idea. Um, cause I like to kind of settle into what the producers like made as far as the atmosphere of a song, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so- sometimes they prefer to have a vocal ahead of time. So maybe, uh, I'm also a piano player, so I'll like sit down and write something, um, on a piano and then record it and then send it to them and they make something, which is always cool too. Cause you have really have no idea what they're going to do with it. And they come out with something really dope, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you come back like surprised? Like, I can't believe that's where you took it. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, every time that I send a vocal, I like have this idea of where I think it's gonna go, and they send it in a whole other direction, which is it's great. I love it. Um, do you ever get into like a game of chicken? And you're like, you write the song. They're like, we need the vocal. You're like, no, you write the song. We need the vocal. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm pretty like easy to work with. So whatever, like you know, however, whoever I'm working with prefers to, however they want to do it, I usually just go along with that. You know. And working with the, uh, it's interesting what you said. So like has like the way that the tracks have come back has that made you kind of reimagine some of the vocals you do or like push you as an artist to to do different processes yeah of course i mean the thing is like they always do something different and they always push your vocal to a different place and then you're always like whoa i never really thought of that before you know and then i mean there's definitely things that walker and royce have done with just the editing of my vocals and things that i think about now when i'm writing a song for someone else and i i love the way that uh they work with vocalists um it's always really uh, in a whole other direction than what I would think in my head. Um, so it's always good to, to have those tools, and you know it helps you, of course, develop and make different styles and 
What's the uh, the live show like? Uh, I mean, I, all the shows that I've done have been in clubs, and I love that vibe. I love that energy. I like being, you know, near the people. It, I've done shows with MNDR, and that's a stage show, and that's totally different than, than doing a song in a club. Doing a song in a club has so much energy, and um, the people are... It's just a different vibe. I, lo- I love the club vibe. I really do. I've always loved going to see bands um, play like club nights where mm-hmm. they're programmed like a DJ, which is like one band and all DJs. Yeah. And like it kind of it really does mix it, like pushes the energy in a way. Yeah. Two bands is a show. Yeah. One band is a DJ set. Yeah, type, yeah, yeah. Type of vibe. I'm definitely like, I really am into like how things feel. And when you do a performance in a club, it's like, less about like what you're looking at and it's more about the feeling because you're kind of like in the room with all the people instead of instead of being on a stage and someone watching you you're kind of like engulfed in the crowd you're either in the dj booth or you're in front of it but you're like with the people and it's more of a you know collective experience do you feel that there's a bit of too much distance when it's like a stage show with like the height and like the so far for me like yes but i'm sure one day i'll get over that but you know i'm relatively new artist and most of the stuff i've done is with the club it's definitely more comfortable yeah and i definitely feel better in the club it's definitely more like those lights are on you when you're on the stage but i love that too that's a whole different vibe and um you know it's a different setup and usually um, you know, like this, this is like a club track, so it usually gets mixed in to yeah. whatever's being played. It's not like silence, song, silence, clapping. It's more just like you're kind of coming in and doing your thing and adding to the room and like fading out, you know? Yeah, I remember when I saw Luca for the first couple of times when he did his um, Drop the Lime stuff and like he would mix in his own vocals and everything. I thought it was like such the right setting for that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and also the live show was good too, but I always preferred the, the mixing in as well. Yeah. Um, so what, what's up next? Uh, I mean, I'm just working on some new music. I'm working on trying to write some songs for other people, too, uh, which is a a really interesting uh, experience. Do you try to find their voice within yours, or do you just write from your voice and hope it sounds good? I found like the best way is really to just write a good song. Mm. Um, It works better that way. I feel like I've tried to write stuff before where you're trying to like think of... You you always want to think of the person you're writing for, but... It's more important to write a good song because a lot of times you'll do things that you normally wouldn't write because you're writing for that specific right. person. You know, um, it's always better just to try to focus on writing a good song and then worry about the details of trying to cater it later. You know, right? Or they can just like mess around with it a little bit. Right. The producer can always add in some things that are more stylistic to whoever you're you're writing with, and obviously when that person performs it, they're going to do it in the way that they do it, but. I think it's always better just to, to focus on making, like, a good song and, you know, serving up the meat and letting somebody <laughs> else, like, put the trings on, you know? Um, all right. Well, we'll, we'll, leave, we'll end on a food analogy. Uh, okay. where, can people com- where can people find you, buy your EPs, um, book you for shows? Beatport, iTunes. Uh, they're both with Walker and Royce featuring Stephen Clavier. I'm on Twitter as Stephen Clavier. Uh, Instagram as well. Facebook. It's all pretty pretty straightforward. Okay. Um well, I want to thank John for joining us today, Ghetto Gastro. Steven, thanks for coming. We'll thank let you. you get one more song in. But shout out to Ornella, Darren, Anna, Mom, Dad, Joe, the whole Heritage family. Uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes. Uh, what's the last song you're going to uh, play? That was actually Follow. Okay. So now we're going to do Over. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> uh, Great. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
starting to act Pushing me around while our loving floats We can't go back Can't you see the way you're making me feel So much pressure my heart explodes This can't be
listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.